I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. I hope you're having a great week. This week, I am pleased to announce that my sponsor is going to be somebody I've picked. I'm not accepting money from sponsors anymore. I'm just trying to help out small businesses um, while we all go through this period of time. And I've collaborated with Page One Books, pageonebooks.com, and the one is not O-N-E, it's page number one, pageonebooks.com, and also Hampton's Hand Poured, which is a small candle-making business. And the three of us have teamed up to create a book box bundle containing three books that are particularly relevant slash funny slash entertaining for this period of time, one by John Kenny, one by Carla Nomberg, and one by Jen Gotch. And also a candle that has a label that says, next chapter, please, because... I don't know about you. I'm definitely ready for the next chapter of life. So please go on page1books.com. 15% of the proceeds, which is my entire portion, I'm donating to COVID-19 recovery efforts. So buy yourself a box. Send a box to someone who you know needs a pick-me-up. It'll be really helpful. They'll read the three books, light a candle, and feel immediately better. Now's the time. And it helps support these two small businesses, Page One Books and Hampton's Hand Poured. And you'll make a difference on so many levels. So please check it out. It's on my website, and it's also on pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much. Also, just wanted to remind you that this week, like every week, I have five new essays up in We Found Time, my new online magazine. We Found Time's five essays this week are written by Christina Geist, Tiffany Schlain, Wendy Walker, Beth Riccanati, and Mara Laura Philpot, who have all been on my podcast already. So you might have listened to their episodes or you should go back and listen to them again. And they've written fantastic essays on everything from taking one day off a week for technology to not prioritizing finding a new man when you have a teenage boy at home, all sorts of great stuff. So please check out wefoundtime.com any day this week for our five new essays. I'm here today with Marissa Meltzer, who's the author of This Is Big, How the Founder of Weight Watchers Changed the World and Me. She's the co-author of How Sassy Changed My Life and also Girl Power. She is a contributor to New York Magazine and the New York Times. Her work has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Slate, Elle, and Teen Vogue. She attended Evergreen State College. Originally from Northern California, she currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Marissa. Thanks Thank you. We're coming on Moms in Our Time I'm to so Read happy. Books. This is so fun. We've already been like chit chatting, and <laughs> I feel like now that it's name mispronunciation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, can you please tell listeners what this is big is about? And I'll just read the subtitle again: How the Founder of Weight Watchers Changed the World and Me. So that's a hint as to what it's about. It is. It's a hint, but it's it doesn't. You know, it's hard to sum up a book in like one subtitle. It's about the woman who founded Weight Watchers. Her name is Jean Neidich. And she has kind of a successful entrepreneurial story that's been a little bit lost to history. So it's about how she went from like fat Brooklyn housewife to thin woman who lives in Brentwood and is a millionaire and everything in between founding Weight Watchers. But it's also a parallel story of like my basically lifetime of being a dieter and feeling like I'm a failure at it and being sort of tortured about whether or not I should even 
be dieting, you know, the discourse has changed so much and just kind of turning 40 and trying to reckon with it and doing Weight Watchers in the current day. So much material to delve into. <laughs> this is so fun. Well, let's start with what inspired you to write this book. Why this book? Why a book at all? Well, I'm a New York Times reader and writer, but I was reading the obituaries and I saw the one for Jean Neidich and I admit I had never heard of her or had any idea of who she was. And I had the sense of like, oh, I can't wait to read this because this is the woman who I can finally put kind of a face to all of my rage. And, you know, I can sort of blame her for messing up my life. And instead, I read it and I saw this rags to riches story. I saw, you know, a woman who was about the same age that I was at the time, also kind of reckoning with her 40s and changing her life, you know, a Jewish woman in Brooklyn, and thought, we even look a little bit alike. And I thought, we have so much in common. I want to know so much more and just had so many questions that I wanted answered about her life, about mine. And that's kind of the impetus. And then just couldn't get it out of my head and sort of finally decided to write about it. And what what was your process like? Did you just delve into the research? Like, where were you doing yeah. it all? And I was in New York, and I decided to, just for my own sanity, kind of bookend it with a year in my own life. Looking back, of course, but just instead of, you know, reporting on and on. So it was the year that I turned 40. So I started right around my 40th birthday, which was in July of 2017, and followed myself for a year. I did Weight Watchers for that year. And then I also spent a lot of time at Weight Watchers headquarters, reading the archives of their magazines, interviewing anyone I could find who knew her, going to, you know, the Library of Congress and other things, keeping a journal of all of my thoughts and feelings about the whole process, taking notes on Weight Watchers meetings, just kind of totally immersing myself in that world for a year. And it was so great, too, because you really took the reader through the whole story as opposed to making it like a biography of, you know, Jean Nidich. It was really how as you discovered it and when you just, you know, you took us along for the ride. Yeah, I wanted people to have the whole story, which in my head, maybe narcissistically, always involved me. But I love a biography, but I also just felt like my life and sort of by proxy, so many other women's lives are wrapped up in Jean's story. And the only way to understand where we are now in terms of the discourse about dieting and our bodies and feminism and health, the only way that we could really understand that would be to sort of look back at how it all began and also kind of assess where we are at the present. And I decided to be sort of that kind of stand-in character and was, you know, it was a, it was, it was hard to do. <laughs> well, thank you for taking this on for oh, the rest of thank us. you. I appreciate it. <laughs> but what surprises did you find about, about Jean? Because when I was reading it, mm-hmm. and I did, I do, I did know a little about her going into it. You did? As I mentioned to you before, I used to work at Weight Watchers, and I was a receptionist, and then I was a leader, and I was on the program, and I was like, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid for many years consecutively before abandoning it all. But anyway, so I knew about her from that, but I did so did they know. educate you in your training a little yes. bit about her story? Okay. 
we were whisked off to like a holiday in New Jersey for a weekend of training. And wow. uh, that was definitely part of the, the story. She's um, glamorous. She's a good, you know, also in this time when we are so interested in stories of female entrepreneurs and also yes. sort of female pioneers who've been lost to history. She's, she is that person. And then it didn't end very well for her, which I was so sort of crushed to read. Like you feel like yeah. these people that start great companies or like make a mark or leave their um, creations to the rest of us end up somehow in like a satisfied, happy place. But it was unclear whether that really happened with her. Yeah, that's something I really wrestled with in writing the book and researching it is this desire for a neat and happy ending you know, I feel like I'm sort of a living spoiler alert for my own book because, you know, I didn't lose like 80 pounds and then, I don't know, get engaged and be like, and a surprise, like it's a new me, you know, I lost some weight. I did a lot of really hard work just on thinking about what I even cared about and what I talk about when I talk about dieting and transformation. And I think I changed a lot on the inside. And it was the same thing with Jean's story. I also wanted to be able to tell this kind of rags to riches story. And uh, except, you know, real life isn't like Cinderella. Like it doesn't just end with her, you know, cashing out and moving to the West Coast and just fading into the sunset. There are decades where she was around and, and she was, I think, wrestling with some of her own demons. Um, you know, I think that if you are really tied to food and you lose weight and maybe you successfully, I don't know, negotiate that in your life, that sort of desire for oblivion or for cheating or for being bad comes out in other ways. I see it with myself with spending money or going on like um like a last minute vacation or something like that. Other people have it in other parts of her life. And she very much, you know, gave big amounts to charity and bought real estate and certainly gambled a lot. So, you know, I think that this is a book very much of our time, though, because as I was thinking about talking about her story and mine, I kept thinking, well, we're not really living in an era where neat endings are resonating with us anyway. We're in this world that feels really messy right now and really complicated. And I think if we even look to, you know, our political leaders or our corporate leaders, they don't seem like they have the answers and definitely don't always seem like they're, you know, making the best decisions themselves. So I thought that's just, that's the reality of life right now is that I didn't, um, totally changed everything about myself. And and Jean also wasn't able to, you know, be perfectly happy for the rest of her life. I mean, my ending with Weight Watchers was also not particularly <laughs> Wait, will you I mean, tell me a little bit? Yeah, so I have been, like, dieting since age nine. My okay. mother used to, like, measure out a half a cup of orange juice for me, and I had a calorie-counting guide that she <laughs> had me. So like, I, I still have it somewhere because yeah. I, like, couldn't bear to throw it out, but it was, like, the calorie you and I are about guys. the same age. I'm 43. I'm turning 43, okay. so, yeah. I'm a year yeah. Older. But, no, she was very much from the beginning, like— write down what you eat. And mm-hmm. I remember like going in, and I don't want this to be about me, but I was no, going. No, but, I, I but was it's go- all of our stories, right? To be a woman, <laughs> you know, 
is to deal with dieting and food restrictions and the expectations of your mother and your yes. family. So much of why I want to write this book is because I want to hear other people's stories like yours, just selfishly, because it makes me feel a little less alone and pathetic and like I've, you know, gotten sucked in or wasted my time. No, I mean, I could write, <laughs> I could write a book on this too, I swear to God. I, maybe I should try my, yeah, no, I mean, from the beginning it was like that and I hate to like sell my mother out, but I think she was trying to help me, but she would like hide all the food from me and give my brother all the good stuff mm-hmm, to eat. Mm-hmm. And like, I was never really that overweight. I think she was just afraid that I might become overweight because mm-hmm. of her own maybe biases of her sure. own. So, and I you're was, a mother now, I'm not. But I certainly understand that feeling of, you know, my parents aren't terrible people. Some of their methods were a little weird in their obsession, but, you know, they just wanted to protect me from from the world, essentially. And they certainly didn't want me to be teased or bullied or to be, you know, to have people make preconceived notions about me based on my body. In a way, they were right. You know, I did gain weight and I have dealt with a world that's not always very generous to people mm-hmm. who aren't thin. And so I get it. But we've also come a long way, I think, in terms of what we know on how to talk about, yes. you know, food and weight and health with our children. I feel like so much of my parenting about body image with my kids mm-hmm. is a reaction to my own, like, stuff. I think our generation is absolutely. I talk about it with all of my girlfriends, even ones who have, you know— three-month-old babies and and their weights are already being, you know, charted and discussed and, you know, not to compare it, but I have a dog and she, (laughs) a friend of mine, dog sat her over the holidays while I was out of town and several people were like, oh, wow, it looks like Joan, that's my dog, had like a really good time in the holidays. Like she really gained a lot of weight. Oh my gosh. And she's a bulldog. I used to have a bulldog too. (laughs) Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of her charm is her like, you know, corpulent body. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, it's like, it extends to everything. It's true. Now I make such an effort though, like last night, even I was having a, like I was getting ready for bed and my daughter was sort of in the mirror and I kind of move my arm in a way that I realized I have like a whole new layer of like, like a bingo bat wing, arms. Yeah, hang, bat wing. Like some sort of bat wing hanging yeah. off my arm. And I literally was like, <gasps> you know, like I like gasped to see it. I was like, oh my God, what happened to my arm? It must've been those like 10 pieces of cake I've had in the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what? And I was like, oh, nothing. <laughs> I think I thought I saw something on my arm. And then, you know, I like went in the other room and was like, oh my God, what happened to my arm? So it's I so tried, but yeah. I don't know. It's like, anyway, but my Weight Watcher story, just in a two sentence. Yes, was, please. I lost 25 pounds okay. and I kept it off for like two years and then I had kids. And now I'm like heavier than I was when I even originally started Weight Watchers. Mm-hmm. But I got so obsessed with it. And I don't know if you, it didn't sound like you got like point, like I got points on the brain. It was all mm-hmm. I could think about. They, it should have been like a Weight Watchers eating disorder. I swear to God. It, I mm-hmm. mean, it wasn't, but anyway. But now I'm I like, I didn't, whatever, but so. I think that's part, I think I would have been more successful. And I think you have to be sort of obsessed with points and sort of, you know, essentially counting calories in order to lose weight, which you have to kind of make this decision, is it worth it? You know, my life and my job, I'm not an Instagram model, you know, like there's no reason for me to look sort of beautiful and amazing. There is a certain health prerogative to be thin, but that's a that's a really different discussion and a different weight range than just, you know, we're killing ourselves and and it's just taking up so much of our headspace to sort of chase this ideal body. And it's like, 
what is it for? I mean, I again, like look at my own mother who is still incredibly rigorous about what she eats and exercising and, you know, looks amazing. My mother also looks amazing. Yeah, and is almost 70. And, but also I wonder more and more why, you know, she's not, she's been married for a long time. You know, she is, her job had nothing to do with what she looked like. You know, she wears, she's never been like a sexy dresser. Like, that's not her vibe. She wears a lot of, like, green and brown, earthy colors. And, you know, so it's like, it just becomes this kind of arithmetic that we all have to do of, like, how much of ourselves are we really willing to devote to this? Mm -hmm. And why? Right. And, you know, I personally would much rather eat the cake that you've been eating in the past few weeks. It's great. (laughs) I've been really happy. Then, like, you know, counting every point. At the same time, you know, I just had the results of a physical yesterday, and my blood sugar is a little high and higher than my doctor would like. And, you know, I, I... I don't want to get onto that kind of obsessive diet roller coaster that takes over everything. But at the same time, I don't want to be pre-diabetic. And right. so that's, you know, that's, again, like a whole, we have to make all these small decisions about yes. how much we're willing to go and what changes we really want to make. The best thing I think about Weight Watchers was taking the emotion, like the mm-hmm. the value judgment, like this food is good, this food is bad, because everything just came down to a number. Mm-hmm. So I did like that mm-hmm. as an analytical exercise. Absolutely. But yeah, because whatever. it's just food. It, it's it, just, it's, it's, it's not good thing. food or yeah. bad food. And I think one thing that Weight Watchers was trying to show you is that, you know, within reason, you can and should be able to eat anything. Mm-hmm. I think as Americans, we take... We love a drastic diet. My father loves a, you know, fat diet. It's always, he's always keto or something mm-hmm. yeah, like yeah. that. Trying to lose and, you know, re lose the same 20 pounds or so for mm-hmm. his entire life. And, you know, I was just in Europe and everyone's eating their small but very filling pastry. And for lunch, they're having like soup that has, butter in it and some good bread and and it's like that sounds awesome yeah like but also you know no one's getting fat because they're eating like carrot soup and like a big good piece of like toasted bread and butter you know and like having like a tiny little you know eclair every other day or something you know I want to be I want to be that person but I as an American is still very much attracted to the the quick fix yeah I mean, I haven't even sat down for lunch in a couple of days. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like I'm the trying to like, like, right? sit down. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, you and I should go out to lunch. That's we the, yeah. Yes, we should. That's absolutely the answer <laughs> to this. Let me read a few quotes from your book, um, you. which I feel like I've neglected here. So you wrote, I have tried for years to wear my heaviness with a certain hard-won pride. I flirted with fat acceptance, tried to believe that weight should not define who I am and that beauty comes in different packages. But is that even possible today unless you decide to live alone without Wi-Fi in a yurt in Montana? (laughs) (laughs) Again, I love a a dramatic fix. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, with social media, I often just think, you know, before Instagram, I don't think I had any clue of how many, like, beautiful girls there there were. There's just, like, beautiful girls being beautiful, often in beautiful places. And I have never gone through the world like that as sort of a, you know, gorgeous person living gorgeously. And so, and yet I still have this pressure on myself to kind of be better. I'm very much enamored with the idea of fat acceptance that I could just 
you know, have someone suggest to me that dieting didn't have to be my life. But I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I mean, it's no different than a doctor being like, you know, you should go on a diet and lose 40 pounds and then you'd be healthier. It's like, oh, really? Like, no one's told me that. Like, yeah, I know that, like, I'm buying into this kind of patriarchal culture. But at the same time, I don't live in a vacuum and I'm a product of this society. And it's so much easier to change yourself than to try to change society. And there's also so many other things wrong with the world that I'm not sure that, like, for me, body acceptance is going to be my number one thing to champion. I know everything is related, but so, it, you know, it, it, none of it is that easy. And I think that there is a real narrative that over, oversimplifies all of it for us. And I wanted to write this book partially because I felt like no one had shown how nuanced it was and how complicated. Like, yeah, we all know better about mm-hmm. all of it. That doesn't mean that it's easy. Right. You had this great quote also. You said, good feminists do not diet. So how should, I mean, I know this is what we were just talking about, but it's like, how should we think about it? I mean, I mean, I don't know Gloria Steinem and I've never met her, but I've always suspected that she eats like a 70s dieter to this day, like just eats like cottage cheese and fruit plates and like every day for lunch. Right. Like whatever the diet plate is at the diner. So I don't actually know how feminists eat, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I, you know. But even the idea that to diet would be to make a statement about our femininity or our view of gender relations. And, you know, then what about men? I mean, there are plenty of men who are struggle with their weight just as much and have, you know. And in some ways, I don't want to say it's harder for men, but it's, there are added things to the conversation, you know, men don't have as as much of a sort of societal urge to talk about feelings or how hard things are for them or their bodies. And, you know, even though women reflexively talk about diets to each other, sometimes probably to their detriment, kind of egging each other on, I don't know that men really talk about how they're feeling about their bodies or their food or anything like that. And so I do think they end up getting seduced by these Mm-hmm. you know, hardcore fat diets or these exercise regimes or whatever. And a lot of what I see with that, I think, yeah, tell me about it. You know, oh, this is all old hat. Like, oh, you're doing, what is it? Like incremental fasting or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Yes, it's yes. like, yeah, I've, I, there was a French diet book about that yeah. about 10 years ago that I read, like, yeah. catch up. But yeah, I mean, it's again, the sense that we should all know better. I was raised as a devout feminist by, you know, the same mother who took me to protests against beauty pageants also sent me to fat camp. And, you know, I'm still to this day trying to kind of piece all of that out in my own psyche. So, yeah, I'm a feminist. I believe in inequality for women. I believe that, you know, the world has been influenced by the men who rule it. I would like to undo a lot of that. I know my the way that I feel about my body is bound up in that. But at the same time, you know, it's still just me and my body trying to just make it through the day. <laughs> <laughs> like figure out what to have for lunch. Just to figure yeah. out how to, what to have for lunch. And also, if you do not share those views about being a woman that I do, guess what? You still have those same issues that you're dealing with. And so, you know, I think that there's this added guilt that I have that I should somehow have every single part of me reflect 
my political ideas or just my values as a person. And that's hard. And that it, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be the most honest. So for me, it was a little bit about dabbling in the idea of being a bad feminist and saying, you know, I am a feminist, but I also diet. <laughs> and I also wish I was thinner. And, you know, if someone... I watched the, you know, Fleabag, which is amazing series. And in the first episode, there's a scene where the two sisters are at this feminist talk. And the woman says, you know, raise your hand if you'd give five years off your life to have the perfect body. I'm paraphrasing. And their hands shoot up. And I thought, I've never felt so seen and understood. Like, I still probably would give five years off of my life if I could just snap my fingers and not have to deal with gaining weight or, or any of those things again. I don't think I would give up years I'm, of my th- life. You're healthier than I am. Oh, stop. I mean, me- no, no, I mean, your I mean, mental health is better than I am. But I guess the point is that, you know, what we think and what we feel don't always have to be the same thing. And I don't think that we're going to really make headway in all of this discussion about our lives and our bodies until we allow ourselves to be honest with ourselves and with each other and really nuanced in that discussion. So true. You just said one other quote I wanted to read. Please. You said, I have days or sometimes just hours where I feel adequate, like someone could or should desire me for what I look like. But most of the time I want to change it all. So talk to me about like other people, your relationship with other people and Mm -hmm. how you feel about your body vis-a-vis like your love interests and whatever. I don't have a lot of love interests in my life right now. I was having lunch with a friend about a week ago who I hadn't seen for a little while. And she said, you know, give me the update. Are you dating? And I always feel really bad because, you know, the answer is always sort of no. And I am so confident in most of my life, but I really have been sort of beaten down not literally, but emotionally in terms of the way that men have been about my body and my weight. And so, you know, I keep thinking like, yeah, I'm going to get on those apps and do it. And then I just kind of shy away, you know. So, yeah, I, again, like, I don't have what I would like to say is a good answer. It's something I'm still struggling with, but I'm hoping that by talking about it, it's something that other people will chime in about and say, you know, that they too struggle with it. You know, I think that there's a lot of great stuff out there about just sort of visibility for more body sizes and shapes and, and you know, shows where, you know, fat or larger women have love interests and it's great, but, and I know that can happen, but that's also not really been how it's been in my life. And so I'm interested in in kind of getting into that in terms of like, how do you feel good about yourself when so many people around you aren't? Mm -hmm. And that when your life would probably be easier if you were a little bit thinner. And so- maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe like, there's no guarantee. Else. You just don't know. There's always I mean, something, there's, yeah, because I'd be obsessed about food and I'd be boring to hang out with. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm always kind of in this, these parallel stories in my head where, you know, I can sit in front of you wearing, we're wearing actually fairly similar we outfits. Feeling cute. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're both wearing I, like long skirts. Yeah. And boots dark, and dark boots sweaters. And dark yeah. Like, I love fashion. I dress myself. I feel good. 
I have a great life, I have good friends, I'm successful, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, there is this kind of ever-present narrative in my head that is like, well, if I lost weight, certain things might be easier for me. And I don't know if they'll ever kind of merge or if I'll get rid of that nagging voice in my head or I don't know. We'll see. Did wait? Did you have to ask Weight Watchers permission to write this book? By the way, like, did, did, I'm not. I'm not a big permission asker in general. No, but I did. I made sure very early on that they were aware of it. Of it, I started out. I thought it would be less intimidating, both for me and sort of for the project, if I started out with an essay. So I wrote a piece a few years ago for the New York Times about my interest in Jean Nidich and. At that time, I used that as an excuse to get in touch with Weight Watchers, just asking them for any info. And then I sold the book and kind of was like, I'm going to keep going with this project. So they opened up certain, you know, archival materials for me. And they knew about it from day one, but it was never something of whether or not it would be endorsed or anything like that. And what's coming next for you? Do you want to do another book? Or? Oh, absolutely. But none of them are any, I, I'm not being coy. I just don't even, the ideas aren't really formed enough to even say what they are. I want, honestly, to get this book out in the world and, and to have these conversations and to, you know, ch- maybe change a little bit how we talk about dieting, but really transformation in our lives. I know, I think one of the biggest takeaways is sort of, it's almost this like you always want what you can't have type of narrative, mm-hmm. right? Like you seem to think if I were thinner, then maybe this would be different in my life. Whereas somebody else might say like, you know, today I was saying to my daughter, like, oh, I always wished I had blue eyes, you know? <laughs> She's like, why? I'm like, I don't know why. I just, yeah. maybe, would my life be any different? I mean, you just like, you I have blue and eyes, I, I can her, tell you, no, I don't, I and I'm a natural blonde too. I I, people always are like, oh, a blonde. And it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I really. It's just you always wonder, if I had this, would sure. things be different? Or yes. how would things be different? Mm-hmm. This obviously is different because it's within our control to some extent, right? Yeah. This is like our right. choice in a way. Which is you know? what makes it so interesting because there are certain things like the family you were born into, issues of class, race, right. um, control. ability that you can't control. And that's a very different conversation. But there's this idea that you can control your weight, although you know, the doctors would or wouldn't agree with that. But we're treated as if we can control our weight, and we can, sort of. And so it just becomes this thing of like, well, here's one thing that I could change, and do I decide to do it? Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? My advice is to read. I don't think that you can be a good writer without being a good reader. And I think it's essential for just developing your own sense of what is good writing in your opinion and what isn't. I also think it's a really good exercise to learn how to write completely in your own voice before you try to, I don't know, tweak or change that voice. I I feel like I read a lot of writing that seems like it's written how someone thinks that writing should sound or how they think they should sound. And I think literally you can practice writing exactly the way that you speak. I think a lot of friends of mine like my writing because they say it feels exactly the way it does to to be with me and to talk to me. And I think that is actually a skill that we could each develop. And 
you know, no one talks or thinks exactly like you do. And if you can learn to really get that on the page, then you can start playing with it. But I think that's a really good first step. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for coming on Mom's Home Time to Read Books and for sharing all of your thoughts and personal feelings and, and everything. It's really, really awesome. The pleasure was all mine. Okay. Let's go to lunch. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Again, today's episode has been sponsored by my collaboration with Page One Books and Hamptons Hand Poured. Please check out the book box bundle retailing on pageonebooks.com, also available on my website, zibbyowens.com. Please check it out. And thanks again for checking out wefoundtime.com for this week's five new essays. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.